This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. I'm Adam Grant. I'm here with Nick Kristoff, co-author with his wife, Cheryl Wu Dunn, of A Path Appears, a brilliant book that's been called inspiring by the likes of Bill and Melinda Gates, Bill Clinton, Angelina Jolie, and many others. Nick, welcome. Delighted to be with you. Well, I, I've been a fan for a long time. Uh, two Pulitzer Prizes, New York Times column. What inspired you to write this book? Well, Cheryl and I had written a previous book, uh, Half the Sky, about empowering women in other countries. And then after we wrote that, then so many people would come up to us and they would ask, you know, A, well, what about the U.S.? And B, so what can I do? And we wanted to try to address that. And it seemed to us that there are so many Americans who want to make a difference in some form, but the problems seem too vast. Uh, They don't really – they're suspicious about corruption and efficiency. And they don't really know that they can't accomplish anything. In fact, we think there's been a pretty good evidence base that has emerged that shows what does work, what doesn't work. That's one of the big points that you hammer home in the book, that we need to take evidence more seriously in this domain. Why why aren't we doing it, and how do we change it? You know, I think that it's so tempting just to go with our gut, and that's always been the way we've done it. I think it's also just a little bit more work. Um, But I think it is gradually coming, and now you have – randomized controlled trials where you can uh, test a intervention the way you would a pharmaceutical. And um, it gives you a real sense of what the impact is at what cost. Uh, and I find it so useful because you know every, every aid group in the history of the world has always found that its own interventions are incredibly successful. <laughs> and they always come to me and want me to write about them. And I, you know, I'm frankly a little bit skeptical. But when I see an outside measurement um, using a randomized trial, then I'm much more confident that this is real. Well, one of the things that, that I found challenging reading the book was it led me to question how I actually make my everyday choices. And I, I have a feeling I'm not alone. Um, did you find that writing the book transformed your own thinking about giving? Um, you know, it challenged me a little bit, I think Cheryl and me both, because, you know, frankly, we do a certain amount of giving that is not particularly optimized to create opportunity. You know, I mean, I, um, I, we give to some cultural organizations, we give to our alma maters, uh, and the beneficiaries of those are going to be, you know, kids that are better off than average. And, um, and so that kind of forced me to think about that. And I think where I came down is that it's a little like a, a buffet and that we don't everything we do isn't intended to you know add a little bit of utility in some kind of utilitarian scheme uh but Cheryl and I also go out to dinner and um that money might be better spent in Bangladesh but so be it and as long as our donations to a cultural organization or to our alma maters are coming out of the go to dinner money rather than out of the Bangladesh money then we're in good shape so there, there are a lot of powerful stories along with, with studies looking at different ways of, of trying to successfully make a difference. Um, I thought Cure Violence was one of the most fascinating ones. Think, How did yeah. you come up across that story and uh, what did you take away from it? You know, I've always been interested in public health approaches because it seems to me that 
we have this yearning for silver bullets and that that is not in fact how change comes about. Change comes about through silver buckshot, you know, just a lot of little things that, that achieve results. And that's kind of a classic public health approach. And indeed, that is what Gary Slutkin, the founder of Cure Violence did. He was an expert in epidemiology and uh, looking at, at uh, the way contagious diseases spread in Africa. And he then came to Chicago and looked at the way gang violence was spreading. And he realized this is a public health problem. It's not a criminological problem. And we have tools from public health about stopping infections that we can apply to stop gang violence. And he began to, to do that. Uh, and it worked. And it worked incredibly cheaply. Uh, and so, uh, and he's been able to measure that and now try it in other cities. It's been, it's even been introduced in Syria right now. Um, so, um, you know, the, this idea of just trying creative new approaches, measuring them carefully, uh, tweaking the model in this sort of iterative process to get the most impact you can at the cheapest price, I think is just such a powerful model. What can companies learn from this approach? Uh, social impact is a theme that runs throughout the, the book. And what do you think businesses should be doing differently based on everything that you've been learning and studying? Well, I've got to say, I think businesses right now tend to approach um, CSR as this kind of fringe activity on the side. Boards and, and CEOs spend very little time on it. It has very little effect. I think they've got to completely rethink this if they want to recruit and retain young people from the millennial generation. For millennials, these are issues that really matter deeply. And if you're not competing in this space, then you are undermining the long-term future of your company. Uh, and, and that goes to the long-term future of your share price as well if you can't get good people. Um, I think that companies can have a huge impact on uh, society for good if they exercise it. And, uh, but right now, it's this kind of peripheral thing. It's not well thought out. Um, not much measured. <clears throat> People know within the company that if they go off in CSR, you know, their career may be stalled. I, I think we'd all be much better off if companies uh, made this much more front and center. You talk not just about you know, thinking about social responsibility, but about creating opportunity. How did you settle on that as, as your lens and your sort of focus within the domain of making a difference? Cheryl and I sort of feel that the basic aphorism for the 21st century is that uh, talent is universal, but opportunity is not. And that just seems to sum up so much of the challenges we face. And earlier we wrote about women's empowerment because one of the main reasons why um, opportunity is not fully exercised is gender around the world, but it's not the only one. And there are an awful lot of people who don't exercise their talent, can't f fulfill their contributions to society, because of other reasons. They don't get a good education. They're uh, living in poverty. They're stuck in a poverty cycle. Um, and uh, try to create that opportunity is a way of addressing inequities in society. Um, we tend to measure uh, inequality through metrics of income or wealth. The greatest inequality of all is inequality of opportunity. And these are things we can do something about. And one of the things that, that I found, I would say, striking at minimum, um, 
maybe even unsettling at maximum, is how close you got to people who are experiencing this equality, inequality of opportunity. Um, you know, there, there's some stories in the book that were absolutely gut-wrenching. Um, and what's, what's also inspiring is that many of them turn around and are able to discover opportunity. But what was it like to, to engage with people both in the developing world and here in the United States who are just experiencing some of the worst of what life has to offer and, and still come away with a sense of hope? You know, it is so frustrating when you see um, people who we let down because they slipped through the cracks. There's a four-year-old kid in West Virginia who we saw who um, had had uh, ear infections that weren't addressed early. He went deaf. There was no hearing screening. And so as his brain is developing, he's not getting any auditory stimulus. And so he can't speak. It's not clear if he's ever going to bounce back. And... I think what I find most frustrating is that there's a tendency of successful people to harp on personal responsibility. And that's, you know, absolutely true. One, there's a lot of self-destructive behavior that goes with poverty. And of course, we want personal responsibility on the part of the poor. But we also want responsibility on the part of society. And when we let kids get by without a hearing screening or not able to get to a good school or not have access to family planning at a time when one-third of teenage girls become pregnant by age 19, then that's irresponsibility not just on their part but on all of our parts, especially when we have the toolboxes now and the evidence about what works, and yet we don't implement it. What would you like to see happen in, in schools? Let's take business schools in, as an example. If you want to teach the next generation to think differently about solving these kinds of problems, where would you start? Business schools have so much to offer because one of the problems in the nonprofit sector has been you have people with very good intentions who are very, very well-meaning, but productivity in the nonprofit sector has hugely lagged productivity in the for-profit sector. And because you're not getting market signals, people are much more inclined to invest in non-optimal uses. And over the last 15 or 20 years, it has really been quite useful to have more people coming from the business world into the do-gooder world with a real emphasis on measurement, on bang for the buck. Uh, and that is useful, but there's a lot more that can be done. And in particular, the nonprofit world often doesn't have people who are good at um, kind of the um, – some of the peripheral areas, I mean, marketing, for example, uh, nonprofits systematically don't market well. And marketing is so much more important if you're encouraging girls' education than it is if you're, you know, trying to sell Coke. Do you think the same skills apply, though, or do we need to rethink the way that we actually teach people to market in this new domain? I think that in that, for that example, in marketing, probably the same skills apply. I think that we do need to rethink um, a lot of business skills. And, um, you know, in, in finance, for example, I think that um, social impact bonds are potentially a way of providing capital for investments that save the public money in a context in which often government does not invest in things that would save it money. Um, and so I think there, I think it's going to be a mix, uh, both applying existing uh, business tools to the nonprofit world, but also rethinking some uh, some of the conventional business tools for a new context. And if you think about your typical business reader coming away from the book, what actions would you like to see them take that they're not doing currently? You know, one of my frustrations is that 
we in society generally, we have this um, sort of bifurcation in how we see the world. So uh, probably a little less true of a business audience, but in general, there tends to be this view that um, for-profit companies, greedy, nonprofits, noble. Um, and it's obviously more complicated than that. What matters is whether there is impact. And some businesses, for-profit companies, can have tremendous impact for good, and some nonprofits can have none. Um, likewise, when we allocate our capital at the end of the year, you know, we divert a little bit of it toward charity, and we want no return. We give it all away. We want to lose all our investment. And then much of it we will invest in the market or – uh, for our retirement, and there we want the highest possible return and, you know, no compromise on that, and we don't look at all about social impact there. You know, there should be something in between the two. Maybe uh, people are willing to invest their capital but not get their – not get a return or to lose part of their capital or, you know, there should be something in between these two poles. Where do you stand on, on B Corps as an example of falling in the middle? I think that B Corps are a great idea. Uh, I think that uh, the whole idea of trying to find alternatives uh, to these two extremes is is a really useful one. Um, I think that in practice, it's been um, you know hard to figure out how you manage the trade-offs. Uh, but uh, in general, I think it's a great idea. And on a similar note, uh, buy one, give one models are, I think, exploding in popularity. If you think of a Tom Shoes or a Warby Parker, how does that fit into the picture for you? I think that works really well uh, as a marketing technique for the companies. I'm less convinced that it's always the optimal way of addressing that social need. Uh, you know, but on the other hand, if, if the marketing works and it's a way of getting customers, then, then, then it may in the, in the long run be successful uh, there too. There was a, a very moving review in the New York Times by an Oxford professor of the book uh, who warned, if you don't want to rethink the way that you spend your time, don't read this book. Uh, and I, I think that's, that was a very accurate way of characterizing the effect it has. Uh, what was your reaction to that review? Oh, we were incredibly flattered because you know we wrote the book not just to inform, but ultimately we want people to to then take action. And the most flattering thing for us has been when a book club reads A Path Appears and then decides, okay, what are we going to do now? And when they decide to, to do something. And, um, you know, we would love to see uh, people who read it then decide, okay, they're going to not only support um, a business school with their donation, but also support a nursery school, for example. You know, I think that would be, I, I think that there really is a toolkit out there to have an impact on the world that we are underusing right now. And I hope that people will pick that up and do things with it. If you were going to take away one major message from the book, what would be the, the driving point there? I think one uh, – can I get two? <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so you know, one would be that we really can indeed uh, have – an impact and that by having an impact on others, we have an impact on ourselves and that nothing, you know, that purely altruistic behavior is pretty much impossible because of the selfish pleasures we derive from it. And the other is that both in this country and abroad, one reason why we haven't had more uh, luck in uh, chipping away at poverty has been that we typically start too late, and that it is an awful lot easier to help a troubled six-month-old uh, six than a 16-year-old down the road. And, you know, 
that's the low-hanging fruit, these early interventions, and yet we invariably try to pick the high-hanging fruit of building prisons later on to address those who've slipped through the cracks that we put there. I think early intervention is a message we can all get behind, and we're grateful that you came and joined us today. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.